Welcome to Artelligence, the podcast of art news, art in America, and Art Market Monitor. I'm Marion Maneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art world. In this episode, we're speaking with Guillaume Cerruti, CEO of Christie's. Guillaume talks about how his company has adapted to the pandemic. He tells us why they created global relay auctions, what his team needed to do to help bring the company together, and his goals for expanding and diversifying the audience for art. Guillaume, thanks for taking the time to be with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Marion. Good to see you. It's very good to see you, even if we can't see each other uh, in person. This is almost the equivalent of it. You know, since we're starting a new year and thinking about, you know, a time when we both hope the pandemic ends and there is some return to normal, I wanted to take a moment to both learn what we've experienced and also think through how the art market has changed in the years sort of preceding this. I'm I'm reminded that in I think it was March or April, there was a press call that um, Christie's did. And one of the uh, reporters asked you a sort of leading question about, you know, did you think that that the pandemic was going to change the art market? And I'm pretty sure their expectation was that you were going to say, oh, no, no, you know, luxury, art, it's eternal, nothing's ever going to change. And to, at least to my surprise, and I think to, to theirs, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing here, I, I think you basically said, yes, it's going to change a lot, and you were looking forward to it. And so I, I wanted to start there. In, you know, before we even figured out these new sales and, and all, what were you hoping was going to change about the way we conduct uh, business? I think we have learned much from uh, the uh, past year. And it's true that while probably in 2021, there will be some return to normal, many things will have changed compared to the pre-COVID activity on the art market. Of course, there is one evident one, Marion, we all know, is the fact that the online sales and the use of digital tools will be much broader than it was in the past. But we all know that. And, and uh, in a way, the COVID-19 played the role of a catalyst. It accelerated this move towards online and towards digital. You remember that at Christie's, we announced one year ago before the pandemic that we wanted to reduce by half the number and the volume of our catalogs. Now, that seems, you know, anecdotal because uh, we probably will have reduced by more than uh, 75% the volume of our catalogs this year. But it was coming and um, there are you know, few positive aspects in the COVID-19. It has been a challenge and a very difficult uh, experience for us all. But some good things uh, like, you know, the, the, uh, the reduction of catalogs and moving towards uh, more digital uh, tools and use of these digital tools will remain hopefully in the, in the future. That's not the only one, but that's the obvious one. Another one that was very interesting to experience is that it forced us to innovate in the way we conduct ourselves, uh, you know, between different locations. And in, it also, you know, forced us to, to uh, have sales at different moments of the year. Uh, you remember that, uh, you know, before uh, we were all looking to the same moment in the year to have our big sales. So we, we have gained some freedom. And, and in a way, uh, there is a positive disruption here. We know that we, we can sell at different moments in the years. In 2021, we'll come back to more normality, 
but we would have proved in 2020 that we can change things without, uh, you know, disrupting or undermining our activity, which is a, a good takeaway. So your response to the pandemic was to create this, uh, the first one was the one sale in July, which was a relay between Hong Kong, New York, Paris, and London. I, I, I mixed up the order with Hong Kong and New York on either end, but but the relay was the, the main feature. And, and at the time, I assumed one of the reasons for that was just simply uncertainty, that you were covering your bases, that by having four locations, you minimized the disruption and you could always make sure that you got the sale off. But since then, you've done two more of these relay sales, which says you like the format, and you just mentioned that it brings to you a sort of broader audience. I, I was wondering if you could go in a little more detail. What is it about the relay that works for Christie's, and how do you hope to advance upon it? Yeah, great question, Mayan. I just want to tell you how it happened. Uh, in April, when we realized that May was not an option, uh, we met um, at the executive level at Christie's with Alex Rotter, uh, Jennifer Zatorski, uh, Francis Belin, uh, our man in, in Hong Kong, Cecil Verdier, in Paris, UCP Cannon. And, 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 and we, we, we thought, what do we want to do in this particular period of time? And, and we all agreed that we needed to go towards, uh, you know, live stream sale and more digital because we had no choice. But at the same time, we all agreed that we wanted to keep something of the, of the, of the in-person experience of the live auction, of the physical auction. Uh, that's where we belong. And, and, and we decided to create this moment with the one auction uh, because of this. There was another aspect. The one auction took place three or four months after the beginning of the lockdown. And it was a moment also to get all Christie's team together. There was also a, a, an internal aspect to this. It was very important. As you know, it has been such a challenging moment. We went through a restructuring almost at the same time. We needed to be all together. So it was you know, a choice in terms of what we wanted to show externally, but also something we wanted to do all together. And from this point of view, it was you know, a defining moment for us. It was a great experience, of course, uh, many things worked very well, other were to improve, but it was the rationale behind this. In the fall, we kept exactly the same principle. We wanted to combine digital and live experience, but we refined the concept and we had this relay between two cities rather than uh, uh, between four cities because it was not the same moment, uh, you know, and we have proved already uh, that we, are, we were able to have the four together. But the four together were, were after a long period of silence, in a way. We needed a strong statement. In the fall, it was more reacting to the demand and the way the market was working and creating great bridges between cities where there was a reason to have the two together. Example, the sale we had in December between Hong Kong and New York. Uh, the, uh, you know, the energy... In, in Hong Kong helped enormously New York at that moment, not only in terms of the gathering before the sale, but also, of course, during the sale itself for the bidding activity and the activity on, on the buyer side. So it was, a, you know, different experiences, but all 
linked by the same principle, combining live experience and digital tools. And so is that sort of the way forward to keep linking places and making novel or interesting combinations? I mean, it, it's worth having a conversation about how strong the Asian market is right now. And maybe we can save that for a minute And uh, while we're just talking about the, the structure of the, these uh, sales. But it, it certainly seems like, you know, the sales are very long done digitally. Now, maybe they'll get faster as everyone gets better at them with the screens and, and all. Uh, but I also wonder whether there's sort of more demand to do more sales more often with more focus, whether they're linking to places or around certain kinds of property. I mean, I know you've already got a March sale um, scheduled in London, so that's that's a little late, but it's still the old calendar. So uh, uh, are you still thinking through what you might do with the auction calendar or are you sort of sticking with what people are expecting? I think uh, we learned from the December sale in, in, in New York that probably the market is expecting some return to normality. People want anchors during the year. Remember also that we were able to have more freedom in terms of, this, in terms of the sales calendar because the fairs were canceled. We structure our auction also in relation with some of the fairs. In, in London, for instance, freeze, October, we have our sales at the same time. New York, Tefaf, Classic Week at the same time. So with the fairs coming back, hopefully, uh, we'll come back to a more normal calendar, probably. But we will also keep uh, the uh, live stream uh, aspect and combining two auction rooms because it worked very well. I took the example of uh, New York December with Hong Kong, but I could have taken also the example of New York and Hong Kong end of September for our Asian sale week, you know, that worked extremely well. People couldn't travel, but they were active from Hong Kong in our Asian art sale in New York. It worked extremely well. We have learned from this. We'll keep that. And also what we'll keep is probably more flexibility in the calendar if we need to add one sale. We have proved it can work with the digital uh, capabilities. So a sale with, with enough uh, uh, integrity, for lack of a better term, you know, that, that can be marketed well, that makes sense, that can get the attention, either a major collection or a few anchor pieces with others that you can build the excitement about, you'll be able to drop those in sort of off calendar, but uh, uh, on the needs of either what works best for the market or what works best for the consigner. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's the, I think, the direction of travel. Uh, um, uh, a combination of, of what was, you know, the, the uh, uh, previous organization. I'm sure that in May, there will be a sale in New York, in November again. You know, probably we need these landmark sales uh, and, and we, we miss them in 2020. So I, I, probably they will come back. We have a sale in March in London. We are working on it at the moment. We have already consigned, as you may have noticed, a very important uh, surrealist work uh, group that will sell in March uh, in London. So we, we will come back to, to these uh, moments. But at the same time, we, we are bolder now. You know, we know that we can add, depending on the, you know, the collection we have, uh, of, of uh, you know, the, the profile of this collection. Uh, for instance, if, if there is a very strong European or Asian aspect in this cell, we can build sales in combination at different moments in the calendar. And I, 
I think what you're saying is your experience is that having these um, uh, hybrid sales or live stream sales means you get a larger audience of potential participants, either by linking to markets or just, I mean, some of the numbers we've seen have been half a million or a million live streams, even if we use the usual discounting on the streams versus who's there, that's still bigger than any auction we've seen in, in, in the past. Absolutely. The numbers, you know, uh, are without comparison. We started the process. Remember, when we sold the Salvador Mundi, uh, it, was live, it, it was live stream at the same moment, I think, on Facebook. And we had, and we had hundreds of thousands of people following the sale. It was, you know, it was an eye-opener for us. We realized that, you know, for major events, the, the, the attractivity is, very, is, is really uh, impressive. So, yes, that's what we have done this year as well. You may have noticed also that we, we, we are, I think, uh, the only uh, major or international auction house to have a WeChat mini site that we use for our sales in Hong Kong uh, when they take place in Hong Kong only on when they are in combination with New York. We use our uh, web, WeChat mini site, which is an incredible magnet for, for Chinese clients. So yes, we will continue to use these uh, these platforms. So while we're on the subject of a Asia, why do you think the market is so strong in Asia right now? Is it just that they seem to be ahead of us and have more control over the pandemic? Is it something else? Partly, yes. You know, probably the recovery uh, went there quicker, for sure. Um, I think in, it's also the confirmation of a process we have seen over the last months and years, more millennials uh, collecting in Asia. Um, for, uh, you know, for the first time this year, and, and our, you know, we are now uh, you know, having the, the figures and, and the final figures, but probably for the first time, uh, the buying and bidding activity this year at Christie's in Asia uh, will supersede America. More buyers and bidders this year in value from Asia than from America. That's the first time. Um, and this, so that's very interesting to notice. Partially circumstantial, as we know, the end of the year in the US for different reasons was weaker, but a very interesting bad weather anyway. And the second is that if you take the top prices for artists under 45, the top 10, in 2020, all in Hong Kong, for Western artists as well as for Asian artists. And by the way, I, I think seven or eight of these 10 at Christie's. But what is interesting is that, you know, uh, uh, I think the top 10 under 45 top prices for these artists in Asia. It says much about the demand there, the taste, and the fact that the millennials are really, uh, you know, uh, massively uh, active in Asia. Well, the, the taste in Asia is very interesting. I mean, uh, uh, years ago, when there were first started to be the, these museums emerging in the Gulf that combined Western art with um, regional or Islamic uh, art, you began to get the first inklings of a kind of global culture that was syncretic, not necessarily sort of based in one tradition or, or another. And, and those museums, I think, you know, made a, a lot of sense in, in that. What we're seeing in Asia feels like almost um, the other side of it, the market, people out of taste, 
assembling a group of artists that are truly global. I mean, uh, uh, the Hong Kong portion of you of the one sale, and certainly several of the Hong Kong sales since, the mix of artists is probably more recognizable to everyone around the world. Plenty of Asian artists, you know, uh, 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 Chinese, Japanese, so some other Asian artists, plenty of Western ar artists, but everyone recognizes all of those names. And the, the cause or Cecily Brown or Richter or Kondo can easily be sold in one market or the other. And, and that seems to have emerged. I, I maybe, maybe it is from your doing and marketing, or maybe ha has that emerged just from the collector base itself? Yeah, I think it's the collector base. It's also a reflection of the, of the fact that in Hong Kong and in Asia now, you have not only Asian galleries, but also Western galleries. And, and there is a very strong mix in terms of offerings uh, uh, that probably explain the fact that, as you rightly said, the profile of the sales uh, for modern and contemporary art in Asia, especially in Hong Kong, is more and more international. And that will continue. Uh, and it, it's really fascinating to see that beside the, uh, you know, the masters, uh, let's say the Impressionists, the Picasso that were sold uh, already in Asia, uh, beside the Asian art masters, Zhao Wuki, Chu Te Chun, uh, uh, you know, there is, there is a, a very strong demand for emerging artists. Uh, and, and uh, you know, my... my um, what I said about the, the uh, under 45 is really, for me, uh, extremely uh, interesting and fascinating. The fact that an artist like uh, Dana Schutz uh, made a record price in a sale in Hong Kong or Adrian Geni, you know, it's extremely interesting. Of course, they are in demand uh, in the West, but they are also already present in, in, in Asia. It was a conscious choice to move the Dana Schutz to Hong Kong because you would get both markets. You wouldn't not get uh, uh, Western bidders, but you would uh, most likely increase the Asian bidders who would go after the work. Absolutely. We have a, a very strong team of uh, young specialists in Hong Kong uh, um, that really, uh, you know, uh, Build these cells, and 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 the uh, the assumption was exactly the one you 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 explained here. It it was really the fact that we we knew that we will have activity from uh, Europe and America, but in addition, we'll also you know respond to the demand in this new market in Asia. So is that more you know matching material to market, uh, uh, you know. Uh, that really wasn't what the business was about uh, e even 10 years ago. Uh, there, you know, we moved uh, the, the, the Chinese contemporary artists who had been sold in the West in like 2006 or seven moved to Hong Kong. And then slowly we built up a sort of Saturday night painting sale that was, you know, contemporary art rather than classical painting and certainly not the works of art and the objects that used to drive so much of the Chinese uh, uh, market. But now it, it seems like there are works that can be sold in all sorts of different places and a big part of what um, your team does is not just source the works, but source them and figure out the right place to sell and market them uh, to achieve the best price. No, that's true. That's true. And, and uh, that's also the reason why we have at Christie's um, uh, united the teams working on 20 and 21st art, uh, you know, uh, century art, all, you know, under the same umbrella led by uh, Alex Rotter and Giovanna Bertazzoni, 
but also integrating our colleagues in Asia. It's the same team that works from uh, for for works of art from the beginning of the twentieth uh, century to today. Uh, uh, in New York, London, Hong Kong, Paris. I think that makes a big difference in the way we build ourselves. They're probably all uh, communicating internally on Slack or WeChat anyway, so it doesn't really. And now, and again, going back to the pandemic, the experience of working remotely has meant whether someone's in the same country as you or on the other side of the world, you can still work and collaborate to either go after the right property or figure out the right way to market it. And uh, uh, That's true. Do you know that uh, 50% of the works we sold during the one auction were, had not been seen by the buyers? And in the fall, I think it was 60%. So it says much about, you know, the... Uh, the way we can work remotely uh, with our specialists, but with our clients as well. Another thing I wanted to mention here, uh, Marion, it, it's our performance in terms of private sales. Um, this year at Christie's, we'll probably break our record for private sales. We are in the region of one billion pounds, somewhere between uh, 1.3 and 1.4 billion dollars of private sales. It's about uh, 25 to 30% of our sales this year, which is a huge volume for private sales. And for the first time, and I thought this uh, piece of information would interest you, for the first time, we have sold more works, uh, uh, you know, uh, above $25 million value through private sales than through auction. I think we sold in 2020 eight or nine, if you include Stan, uh, works uh, or objects above $25 million at auction, and we are at 12 objects above this value through private sales. One more time, a reflection of the market as it is in 2020. Uh, uh, is that because in a private sale you can get the uh, buyer in front of the work easily in a COVID safe way and obviously seeing the work, anyone who wants to spend that kind of money is gonna wanna actually uh, uh, look at it or is it because the market has remained fairly strong but is still sort of stable in terms of prices? I don't think, you know, people know approximately the value of things which should make it easier to, to come to a, a, an agreed price at that level. Probably a combination of the two, but there is another reason, even more important in my opinion. For sellers, when you know the uh, environment is a bit uncertain, private sell is a, is, is, a best, is, is a better route. They are reassured by the fact that we are going to test the market without running the risk of the auction in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's a normal uh, pattern we see when the market at auction is more difficult. Generally, private sales do better because it's, it's a reassuring process. How do you, how do you see the, the demand versus supply situation right now? Yeah, I think um, 2021 should see more supply than we had in 2020. In 2020, uh, you know, people were caught by surprise. They, they first reaction was caution. They waited before going to the market, uh, you know. So that, that's the, the main challenge for us in 2020 was 
on the supply side much more than on the demand side. The demand remained very strong during the, the whole year, maybe at the exception of the end of the year in America. But the rest of the time, very strong demand uh, in all categories. The, the, the challenge was with, with the supply. In 2021, some people who have waited will come to the market you know, to sell. Uh, we know uh, that there will be also some estates in the U.S. Uh, that will be presented in the market in 2021. So I expect a more positive year and a rebound in 2021 because my prediction, my hope, is that the demand will remain strong and this time the supply will be stronger. So there will be a better alignment between demand and supply. And, and does the demand continue to be geographic? Is it more Asian demand looking for objects that will come free either from some of these noted uh, uh, collections in the states that are coming up or individual objects that because there's demand, the, the, the works will come to, to market? I think the, the, uh, the demand from Asia is very strong, will remain very strong. But in, I'm very optimistic about America. I think, you know, when, when, when you come to the market with great material, great collections, provenance, uh, I think uh, 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 there are so many great collectors in America that uh, they will be present, either at auction or privately. So I'm, I'm optimistic about this. I really believe that the shock for this year was, you know, rather on the uh, supply side than on the demand side. And, and, and the demand will remain strong. You know, pe people are looking uh, for great objects. Uh, that, that's the lesson of the, of the last decade, you know. And... and, and uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about the, the art market for 2021. Of course, many things are linked to the vaccine and, and the overall environment and confidence. We, we are a market that is driven by confidence. You know, that's, uh, if people are not in the mood, probably they will be less inclined to sell or maybe to buy. But we know that hopefully we are, even if it's not for tomorrow, we are seeing the end of the tunnel. That will immediately create a better feeling. So I, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic. Uh, um, that will be progressive, uh, pro probably towards the end of the, uh, you know, of the semester, first semester of the year, we'll see, uh, you know, a, a better, uh, be better activity at that moment. But, but overall, I think uh, we can look to, the, to 2021 with, with, with uh, uh, you know, some optimism. Does that mean that the um, auction volumes remain you know, uh, reduced the way they have been uh, in this last year? I mean, it's, it's a great question. And, and, and one more time, difficult to predict here. But what I can tell you is that uh, in the first six months of 2020, when we realized that live auction were going to be a challenge, there was a rush to go to online sales. And, and, and the number of sales and objects was really impressive. And, and, and that was fair. That's, that was the right reaction at that moment. Since then, we have learned to work, uh, you know, with less volume and different events, the live stream auction. People know that they can still be active at auction or through private sales. So I think in, in 2021, I'm not saying here that less will be more, but we will, will be more selective. We don't want to inundate the market. You know, uh, we have received the signal of the end of 2020 in America as, as a sign of fatigue. People are, you know, uh, every week, every day, uh, uh, I mean, everywhere you have 
object proposed online or through live auction. I mean, I mean, it's too much and it's not good. Uh, it, it was a little bit overkill. So in 2021, yes, there will be more selectivity. We hope that more, you know, uh, um, uh, great collection will come to the market. So we'll, we'll work probably more on, on the high end and, and less volume than what we have done in 2020 because 2020 was purely on defense and reactive to a situation where we were afraid of the void. You know, it all of a sudden, you know, it's a, we needed to, to respond and we responded, I think, in the right way through the online and the quantity. 2021 will be different from this point of view. So you, you've got a, a handle on it. You know how to run your business, at least in this, and you've gotten yourself to the right size where you can go forward and hope that things expand, but at least can go forward on this uh, basis. Uh, so let's go back to luxury because that's one of the real bright spots here. And it has, you know, it's not just, oh, the pandemic, we switched to luxury. Luxury has been a big part of your strategy and has been building over the last uh, number of years. I noticed, uh, again, that the handbags, the watches, the um, gems and jewelry sales have all been quite strong. Uh, uh, they are also... Uh, um, done online or as hybrid sales, so they're not uh, necessarily constrained uh, that way. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, demand for that, especially in, in Asia. Is this you know, business as usual for you? Are you going to change somewhat how you do things in this new environment? Is there more that can be done in luxury? Yes, absolutely. Luxury for us, you know, it's, it's basically four uh, you know, categories, as you know. You've mentioned this, jewels and gems. Uh, watches, handbags, and wine. Uh, um, they are similar by some aspect, but also very different. So it's diffi difficult, you know, or, or artificial to have all them, all, all the four of them all together. But um, um, uh, one more time here, um, we are still, especially for jewels, talking about unique objects. Uh, so you don't want to create an artificial market by inundating the market. We, we, we want our specialists to work well on curated sales uh, and work well for our clients, seller and buyers. So, uh, you know, here again, uh, especially after uh, years where, uh, you know, the, the, we were a little bit at, at the bottom of the cycle uh, in jewels, we have to be very careful. We, we don't want to undermine our own market here and the confidence of our clients. Uh, or confuse them about the value and the prices. That, that's something very, you know, particular in this field. We are fortunate at Christie's to have, a, you know, a great team led by a fantastic specialist, Raoul Kadakia, Francois Curiel, who is the uh, sort of legend in this field. Uh, so we, we, I think we have been managing this market for the last 25 years as market leaders very well. Can I just interrupt? Because I think there's something you could explain there, because uh, I'm not sure people fully understand what you just meant there about not confusing the market and all. And we've talked about this in the past, that one of the goals as you've moved towards luxury is to, to change the way people view an auction house, which used to be a place where, you know, someone came in, they put a, a lot number on everything, they sold what was sell, they carted away what didn't sell, and, you know, that was it. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years ago. ago. Over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, there's been a concerted effort, really pushed since you've uh, taken over as CEO, 
to make it clear that the things that are being sold are things of value and will sell and will retain their, their value. So you spend a fair amount of time, and, and I'm hoping you can sort of just outline that for people, thinking through all the elements that will make uh, the buyers have confidence in the value of the objects they're purchasing. Of course. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Our primary client is always the consigner, the seller. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, uh, we build the future with, with the buyer's base and, 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 and we have to make sure that people feel that they are buying uh, uh, an artwork or an object or jewel at the right value. That, that's the way you build the confidence with your clients in the long term. So curating ourselves, having objects with the right provenance, the right interaction between the client and the specialist are key to Christie's. That's why I was telling you we are not obsessed by the volume or the market share. We want to retain a very you know, loyal uh, base of clients and build value in the future with them and with our company. That, that's the direction of travel with Christie's in any category. Uh, um, so, so yes, and, and absolutely. And, and I just wanted to, to make a point about handbags, uh, another niche market, but uh, you know, extremely successful at, at Christie's. Watches where we are, we have a very solid team with great results recently in Asia, as we have seen. And wine, wine is very special to Christie's. Uh, Mr. Pino is the owner for Chateau Latour, as you know. So it's it's also a field in which we we want to be uh, leaders. Well, so let's talk about business models because your competitors uh, faced the pandemic in an even uh, stranger position in the sense that there was a change of ownership, there was a new CEO, just as they were entering into what was the beginning of a phase of uh, figuring out their business model, the pandemic came. And for, for them, at least, that was an opportunity because it accelerated change and, and, and all. But they, they seem to be doing some similar things in the luxury market, but different th things, uh, more to sort of buying uh, uh, things almost as sort of a, a retailer uh, and all. And, and I'm aware that there's you know, a sense that the uh, business models are diverging rather than for so many years they were, they, they were it was about market share and about business models uh, converging. So I, I was hoping you could you know, give your sense of how your business models differ. I'm not going to comment on, on our competitors, never, uh, Marion, as you know, but I can talk about our strategy uh, at Christie's. I, I know what we are trying to do. Um, it's, it's fair to say, and, and when we first met, we discussed this, you remember, four years ago, uh, that uh, for, for a long time, Christie's was associated to uh, great collections, masterpiece, and the high end of the market only or, 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 or almost exclusively. And, and what really epitomized this was, of course, the sale of the Salvador Mundi. We were together in New York for these extraordinary moments. Uh, and that's good. And that's good. The visibility and, and what it says about the strengths of our specialists is crucial for house like Christie's. But that's not enough. And, and really what I tried to build with the executive team and our shareholder at Christie's is, uh, uh, you know, a house where, of course, we are still seen as the market leader by the quality and some of the record prices or by the fact that, that we are the port of call for great collections, but also focusing more and more on day sales, uh, on, on, you know, uh, um, 
other categories in the art market, luxury is a good example, that are extremely important to build a sustainable growth for Christie's. It cannot be only about market share. It has to be also about you know, creating enough value and profit to build the future for this company. Uh, and so probably we are less obsessed by the market share than we were in the past because we know that what is more relevant today is to build a future uh, uh, and, and to be able to invest in digital, in people, uh, in many other fields uh, because we want this brand to thrive in the future and to shine uh, in the same way it has been shining for 250 years. From this point of view, what I can add, just to uh, elaborate a little bit on your question, beside the, the business model from a purely financial point of view, I believe that a house like Christie's should also be seen as leader for its identity and its values on the art market. And what we have seen over the last month in terms of the awareness on sustainability, we discussed this diversity in the, on the art market, is, is also one very important takeaway of 2020. And I believe that for the future, starting from 2021 and from now, it's not only the business model and delivering sale after sale, success after success, profit after profit. It's also about uh, you know, the value we'll share with the wider community in the art markets. Uh, so it's not only about what we do, it's also about who we are on the art market. And that will be a major priority for us in, in the coming month. Well, uh, I was gonna ask you about the, the brand and it's, it's got a dual nature. It, you, it is both um, very valuable, but it's also imposing. And one of the things we've learned in all of this is there is a lot of interest. And we know before, uh, the pandemic, that many people felt, even though the the sales centers are open, uh, they felt um, a lot of hesitancy to to enter. That they didn't feel welcomed. They they, they felt uh, it, it, an inclusion of a different sort. They didn't feel like this was something they had access to. No matter how many times you told them, "Come on in," or it's you know it's fine, or that there were people there happy to you know talk to them and uh, and all. There does seem to have been, again, with these large numbers watching the live streams, um, some sense of that breaking uh, uh, down. Uh, and I was uh, wondering, sort of, just on the, the luxury and the object side, what your people are doing, either the business getters or the spe specialists, in the, you know, to convert people. That's something we also talked about uh, many years ago, is the people who are coming in as new buyers online, how do you approach them? How do you develop a relationship with them? engage them to find out the other things they might be interested in, in so sort of bring them along uh, as clients. Is that something that is sort of just continue to pace? Has it changed because of the pandemic? Does it change, you know, in your strategy going forward? It's, it's, uh, it's an absolute priority. Democratization is one of the challenges for the art market uh, in the coming years and now already. You know, being seen as, you know, working only with with or for an elite is something we ought to fight again. That's a danger. So democratizing what we do, engaging with new audiences is, is, is a priority. I'm, I'm so proud of what we, we have done, uh, you know, in 2020 with uh, our selling, private selling exhibition, Say It Loud, uh, with Destiny Ross Sutton, you know, where it was, uh, you know, in the way we engage with emerging artists but also the way we communicated and the generosity of what we did 
are exactly what we, we want to do uh, in the future. So uh, being seen by more people uh, online is a great advantage, but it comes also with more duties. We need to be more generous, more transparent, more welcoming to these people. Uh, it's not only about watching a show, it's also about welcoming them uh, and, and showing them objects. Uh, uh, if they are interested, engaging with them, educating them, that's, that's something we need to do better. I believe in the art market in general, it's a, it's a, it's a field, as you know, that sometimes is very much inward looking, I think the, the priority for the future, we, we, we need to be more generous and open uh, to, to, uh, to wider communities. That's for me a major priority. That's one of the challenges. Uh, another challenge is also, you know, to be seen as, as more transparent. We are, we are seen sometimes as being very opaque uh, and sometimes we are not helped by, by, you know, some stories on the art market. Uh, uh, and the risk for us is, of course, to be seen as what we are not, at 99%, and also to, to, you know, to raise uh, more and more questions and, and, and being more and more regulated. You know? So we have to be aware of this. We need to be more transparent. So the challenges are responsibility, uh, democratization, transparency. That, that's this, you know, these challenges for, for the art market in general and for House for Christie's are crucial in the future. And do you do you have sort of plans on how to meet those challenges? I mean, you're, part of it is co the collaborations that you're you're doing, but are there other ways that you can make it collaborations? With you know the example I I, I mentioned about uh, you know say it loud. What we've done with uh, one fifty four, the uh, uh, you, you know Afri African contemporary art fair, partnering, welcoming them at Christie's in London doing the same in Paris uh, uh, in, in January 2021. Uh, it's also about changing the way we recruit people at Christie's, you know, to be more open and more diverse. And, and, and that's part of our objectives for now and for 2021 and, and beyond. So do you have, you have plans to sort of ha have a, a recruitment effort? I mean, a lot of, a lot of your recruitment is through clients. Uh, you know, famously, you know, many of the clients, of, uh, uh, children of clients uh, uh, will sort of work for a year or two at, at an au auction house. And, and so much of, of your business is social. Uh, I presume it, it's an effort to get out of, but still maintain some of that um, common feeling or, or, or language between the people who work at Christie's and the potential client. We will invest, uh, you know, to, to change this, as I told you, to be uh, uh, more ambitious and diverse in our recruitment policy, in the way we offer internships, the way we, uh, you know, we, we uh, 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 help those who cannot afford sometimes living in New York just to, to, uh, to work with Christie's. I mean, so that, that's, that's uh, something in which we have now a, a very detailed plan and it's one of our corporate priorities for 2021. Oh, you have a detailed plan. I mean, you know, uh, uh, of, of all the places that want to address this, I would think that you guys have a particular uh, challenge in it just because, uh, again, you know, you, the art market may want to be more inclusive, but there still is this thing, these objects are expensive. It's, it, it can be democratic, but uh, only democratic sort of to a, a certain level because there, there's, there's not a lot of things that you um, sell in volume uh, at a place like Christie's. Sometimes, you know, uh, less volume doesn't mean higher prices. It's about the way you curate yourself. 
and you can have dedicated cells where you talk to a special or specific audience of emerging collectors. We had sales for objects of $100 recently, just as, as, you know, as an experiment, and it worked well. There are many ways for an auction house that organize viewings and exhibitions and, and, and of course, sales to open up to more people. Believe me, it's, it's also, we, we are short-term museums in a way, uh, in what we do. We can be more generous and we also have to make people know that we can be generous. Many people don't know that, uh, you know, uh, uh, attending a viewing at Christie's is free of charge. They don't know, they, don't want, they are intimidated by the brand and will not enter uh, uh, in our galleries. We have to change this. Well, you know, that, that going back to what you said about the difference between what Caring does and what you do is the difference between sort of a secondary market where, where cultural property has value beyond the initial marketing and sales uh, uh, of it. And, and that divergence means that, you know, it's a, as much about creating the sense of value and demand and education. And, and I do suppose, as we've seen with things like the sneaker market and some of these other pieces of cultural property, there are lots of places that if you approach it in the right way, you can make this less uh, what people view as remote and more about cultural value and lasting cultural va value. But that's still, that's gonna be a heavy lift. When we sold Gilmore guitars last year, uh, when we sell sneakers, when we sell baseball memorabilia, uh, when we present and sell a T-Rex, we are going beyond what we do usually at Christie's. And, and that's, that's good. That's good. That's what we need to do as well. And that, that trick, you mentioned Salvador Mundi, the T-Rex, of mixing properties so that we're not just looking at paintings of a certain type or even paintings, but that we're, we're mixing cultural property in ways that resonate with, you know, that there's a halo of, uh, you know, the one thing you didn't do with the T-Rex is the T-Rex didn't necessarily help sell, sell other objects in that, that, that sale, but, you know, the Dana Schutz certainly probably helped sell and uh, pulled in people who might have bought other things in, in that sale and all. It sounds like you're suggesting that there is a time somewhere over the horizon where you can create a, a greater mix of what people uh, think of as being competitive for and valuable. Definitely. Uh, one of the major changes in, in the way people collect over the last 20 years, they do not collect in the same way that 20 or 30 years ago. They collect across categories. They are interested by objects for the way they can assemble them together in different categories, uh, um, design, contemporary art, but also African art uh, can go together. Uh, um, so it's, it's, it's something we need to recognize. And, and while expertise in one field is a key priority and one of our strong points at Christie's, and we want to retain this you know, excellent level of expertise, I think in the way we build ourselves and we create ourselves for the buyer's side, we have to continue to rethink completely the experience, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, and what we've learned from Asia, from this point of view, with this influx of millennials is, is really fascinating. And we have to adapt to this. Meaning this sort of um, changing the, the mixture of different things that they're interested in 
and and I presume also their ability to buy and sell, right? There's le less the the old idea that you bought it and owned it for uh, a lifetime, and then you know it was either given to a museum or your heirs, uh, uh, you know, hung it on their walls. That's true. Even though you have noticed that for say it loud, there was a, a, a resale constraint for the buyers. They had to sign an agreement of not reselling the object within five years, which is also an interesting initiative we took, you know, about building the value for these young artists uh, and making sure that it was not, you know, purely about speculation, buying and reselling very quickly. So, yes, uh, you're right. Uh, I, you know, the new generation probably, for some of them, are less attached to the to keeping the works for a long time, and they are considering maybe uh, the, the way they build their collection in different way. At the same time, we really want people to engage for passion and for the fact that they like an object and they want to have the painting on the object with them, not primarily to then resell it in the short period of time. That's not what we want to build one more time with our clients in the sort of a journey we have with our consignor, but also with our buyers. But it does certainly look like these same millennial collectors you're talking about in, in Asia are as inclined to buy an object as a way to, you know, take care, uh, set aside their excess money as they would put it in a financial instrument or put it in a, in a bank. Uh, and that seems to me has some profound, um, you know, effect on the business if people are using these objects as a store of, uh, of value. And, and I'm just curious to what extent you as an organization have begun to address that? Well, as, as I told you, uh, we will never advise any client to buy to make a financial operation on the work. You know, that, that's, that cannot be for, for any object of, of artwork a client will buy the primary uh, you know, reason. I mean, that, that, that in my way, in my, in, my, in my view, that would be a, a mistake. Uh, um, what we say to any client at every price point, buy because you like the object or you love the object for whatever reason. Because we want to start a collection in this field because you like you know, the, uh, uh, the, the history of this painting or this work or the artist or because you feel a special emotion in front of the work. Buy for this reason. Uh, the engagement with the, the artwork, that's, that's the primary reason. Of course, if in addition, it, it, you know, it uh, um, increase in value over the years, that would be great, even greater for you, you know, even better for you. But, but it has to be the second reason. Never buy for the wrong reason. You know? And, and uh, that's what we, we, we tell to, to every client. And by the way, to every guarantor as well. You know? We don't want someone coming to guarantee your work and not being happy if uh, this person is going to end up buying the artwork. You know that that's primarily what we do. We are we are we are you know trading patience with clients. That's what we do, and we try to do that at every price point and in every region. Of course, the reason and the motivation for our clients may differ. You know, as you know, you know the reasons for collecting or for buying are very diverse from one client to the other. But primarily, it has to be about desire. I agree with this, you know, this feeling or assumption that uh, uh, the uh, artworks or the, the, you know, the object we sell will keep their value because they are artifacts, 
you know, uh, uh, coming from uh, creative minds and that they, they will resist to the test, of, the test of the years, you know, against more volatile assets. I like this very much uh, and, and I, I, I believe in it, you know, for, for sure, because I, I really think value as a, uh, art as a value for, for itself, for sure. But, but what we were discussing is, is uh, the way people buy. It cannot be only this, you know, uh, for sure. It has to be about desire. And, and it goes back to your responsibility. You are an agent for the seller. You cannot be in the position of telling the buyers, you know, this is a great uh, way to, to store value in uh, uh, all because they may be doing it, but that's not your, your place in this uh, uh, arrangement that way. Now, that makes a great deal of sense. So, so what's coming in 2021? I know we're, we've got a couple of big collections that everyone's, you know, waiting to see where they, they land and how that'll get sor sorted out. Uh, and there certainly seem to be more of these uh, collectors who are reaching octogenarian, nonagenarian status who are beginning to either sell or their heirs are, are, are selling. Is that going to continue to populate and sort of be the milestones of the business? Uh, in in the next couple of years, I mean, the Rockefeller sale was such a huge success for uh, for Christie's. There won't be that many that come along um, like that. Though we said that, and then uh, a season later, the Ebsworth collection uh, uh, came along. So, well, Marion, I hope so. I hope so because uh, you know it's a moment where you celebrate someone who has collected. Uh, you know. Uh, 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 over the years, and who had a great eye, and we built, you know, this collection, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, innovating, creating value, discovering artists. That's a great story to tell. So I hope there will be sell like the ones you mentioned, Rockefeller, uh, Epsworth. I mean, great sales with a great history, uh, and also it's it's a defining moment for those who want to participate to these sales. You know, and and so many new collectors probably. Have discovered or, or you know have become have become collectors uh, through these uh, viewings and these sales. So I hope these defining moments will remain on the art market. It's it's really where we belong. We want this. We don't want of an art market where the only experience will be online. We like online. We need to use the platform and the channel. That's fine. That's extremely important to attract new clients for sure. But at the same moment. I truly believe in, in a market where, in an art market where the in-person experience and the gathering around great events will remain. I think it has been like this for centuries, and 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 that's what we like. You know, it's about emotion. Uh, it's it's paying tribute to a great collector and creating great moments for visitors, bidders, and buyers. So I hope so. That will be the case. I, I, of course, you. We know that in 2021, there should be collections coming on the market in the U.S. and elsewhere. That's what we are looking for. Well, uh, look, I, I do think that um, whenever we go back to doing things in, in person, uh, there will be there will be things that return. I'm sure there will be catalogs that return as much as we've tried to stamp them out. I knew, you, sure will mention, I knew you will mention catalogs again, Marion. <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, I agree. I think everyone let, agrees let, let that me, they, they... Let, let me tell you something about catalogs. And I don't want to be, you know, uh, excessive in what I say. We will reduce the volume of our catalog. Catalogs will not disappear. Uh, it's, it's more about the number of catalogs we produce. Uh, uh, it's more about, you know, the, 
the, the, the threshold for catalog and, 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 and only the uh, online catalog, but, but we will keep the object, the book, uh, uh, um, we will just reduce the number of catalogs we produce. Well, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, C catalogs are more driven by consigners than they are by collectors. I mean, yes, there were, there were some nice little um, uh, uh, gallery guides that were made and there were some cute little auction books. And I mean, the teams have been very creative in all the sorts of uh, uh, things that they can create around this. But ultimately the, the catalog is about the consigner wanting having something lasting that shows off their, their collection and all, all. Though the, the big sales got bigger and bigger in those catalogs and your specialists would add more and more appropriate or at least to them objects that, you know, enhance the uh, uh, importance of a, a work and all, all. I assume if catalogs come back or, or the ones that persist are more driven by that, by the, the, the big consigners or the important uh, consignments than they are necessarily by demand from the users who seem very comfortable with their phones and the website. You're right, and that's fair to pay tribute to great collectors, consigners, through a catalog or book. And I, I like this idea. I like books myself. So we will not stop producing catalogs or books, especially, as you said, because they are so important and that's fair for consigners. Uh, but you're also right. On the buying side, we have noticed over the years that less than 10% of our buyers across the sales, with difference from one field to another, of course, less than 10% of our buyers did receive a catalog before the sale and being active in the sale, you know. So there was, there was a discrepancy or a disconnect between the volume of catalogs we sent and the real activity triggered by catalog on the buying side. And that's what we, we, we want to address. So what's, what, what the real participation comes because um, someone calls them? Is it still a high-touch business? Or does it come because uh, they get an email reminding them of something and they look at... I think it's, it's, I hope it will be more and more about uh, calling clients or clients seeing what we offer online, you know, and more and more video, augmented reality, uh, uh, three dimensions, videos on our website. Uh, um, but, but yes, we are pushing our specialists more than ever to interact in person with their clients by phone calls. And, and I want to share with you what is not a secret, but we, we, that's something we, we know and we want you to address. Very often, the catalog was the excuse for not calling a client. Because the response we got from, you know, the specialist, and I'm not blaming them because it was so convenient, was, you know, the question was, did you engage with this client? Did you call him for the sale? The response was, uh, we sent him the catalog. And it was the end of it. It cannot be like this, you know. I mean, uh, uh, the catalog is very important for the consigner. You, you made the point. It can be important for some buyers, but, but even more important than receiving a catalog is receiving a phone call from a specialist about an object that could interest a client in a sale. And, and the fact that we're reducing the number of catalog will help because I'm not saying that our specialist will not have no choice, but at least they will know that if they do not raise the attention of a client on an object, well, the catalog will not play the role of a security net. There is less catalogs. But, but the, the high touch remains important. 
right? That's, and that may be one of the places that, that you diverge, is that the real emphasis on specialist uh, uh, business getters contacting clients, making sure they're engaged in a conversation, keeping it going, not just relying on, you know, sending a, a catalog with a, a handwritten card or something. Absolutely. You know, Marina, I started my career a long time ago in a museum. I worked, you know, as managing director for the Pompidou Center. And I learned from this moment that, you know, the, the relationship between the works of the work of art, the curator and the visitors was key to a museum. That's the way it works. Having been in the art market for more than 15 years, it's exactly the same. It's uh, the relationship between the client and the specialist in front of the artwork that make a difference. That's, that's the moment where you share the emotion and you convince the client. So I think it's, uh, uh, it has been like this for centuries in this, uh, in this world, in this art world, and I hope it will stay like this because that, that's the way we, we like uh, the, this field. And one more time, the, the, the takeaway from 2020, clearly we will use and we are using more and more digital tools, but to serve the personal relationship. That's, that, that the buyer still buys from someone. Right. They don't, it's not an impersonal transaction. It's not a button on a thing. There is someone that they know at Christie's who they have a relationship with, with, with and it's continuing that relationship. Absolutely. Or someone with whom we have to create this relationship when it's with a new client. You know, 30% of our clients every year are new to Christie's. So we have to engage with them and to welcome them to Christie's and make sure that the second time when they return, they have a more personal experience with, with one of our specialists. And that, that's a, uh, 30%, that's a, a lot of volume to convert, bring in, assign to people. And, and, and to just tie this up in a bow with the diversity inclusion issue to make sure that those clients are dealing with someone they feel comfortable with for whatever reason, to find someone sim sympathetic that they have a good relationship with. Absolutely. The, the, you know, the regional or local accountability for our team is, is another priority for us. We changed our organization this year towards more accountability and responsibility for people on the ground in different regions. Christie's tended to be a very centralized organization. And another change during this period we made uh, while we restructure our business was to give more accountability to our regional structures to be closer to our clients. Well, Guillaume, I appreciate your taking the time with me. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Marion. It has been a great conversation as well on my side. I really enjoyed the discussion and I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing you in person very soon. I hope the next one we can do will be in person too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To get the latest art coverage, visit artnews.com or subscribe to our magazines, Art News and Art in America.